Defence Review. We're starting our first podcast for 2015 with having pretty much the entire team with us tonight. Um, I'm your editor, John Stupart. With me today is the South Africa senior correspondent, Darren Olafia, um, and our other senior correspondent, Conway Waddington. Um, today we're going to talk uh, through what the major events in 2015 uh, will, will characterize, or at least what we think will characterize Africa's conflict and crises landscape. Um, so that said, obviously the, we are recording this as Paris has suffered a, a major terrorist attack and uh, uh, it by means appears to be linked um, in no small way to some manner of Islamic terrorist group. But we thought it would be quite good to still nonetheless focus on how terrorism, how conflicts, how crises, humanitarian and otherwise, might have been uh, affected in Africa uh, for the year ahead. So with that said, I think we're going to cut straight to you, Conway, um, given that your specialty is obviously West Africa, Boko Haram, and, and the lot there. And uh, I thought we'd hear from you first and foremost what you think is going to be the uh, the, the, the major topical points um, for, for the year ahead. Okay, thanks, John. Um, well, as you said, Boko Haram definitely tops the list of, of West African and African um, security threats. Um, but Nigeria has a couple of other challenges coming up. Um, the oil price plummeting, that has all sorts of uh, consequences for the Nigerian economy. And, of course, this is also an election year. And going on past, uh, past experiences and, and especially with the, the high levels of, of sort of angry discourse uh, in, in or amongst political elite in Nigeria, it looks like it could get very messy very quickly. Um, President Goodluck Jonathan is, is taking a lot of criticism at the moment for his handling of the Boko Haram um, crisis, for his handling of, of the economy. So the opposition party has, has quite a number of bones to pick with him. And yeah, it could get very, very messy as that election takes place. So do you think it could actually turn uh, violent and open up almost, a, I suppose, a third front amidst piracy and terrorism in the north? Uh, well, maybe not a third front, but it will definitely disrupt things. Um, let's put it this way. Regardless of who wins the election, the loser will, will claim um, some sort of vote rigging. It, that's pretty much inevitable. And... And there are some good reasons to believe that there could very well be vote rigging or other irregularities in the election process. Um, but the the concern is that those those criticisms of the election process could turn into outright violence, some sort of social unrest, um, perhaps not to the scale of a, of a civil war or anything like that, but definitely things could get very violent. Do you think the possibility of a sort of 2008 Kenya election kind of level of violence or um, uh, do you think perhaps a, maybe a little flashpoint um, and, then, and then sort of fading back into obscurity, as it were? I think it's entirely plausible that it could follow Kenya. Uh, that, that, that would be the, the worst case scenario, but I think it is plausible. Interesting. Okay. I remember actually talking in uh, uh, London last year with a, a few of my Nigerian classmates at King's College, and they were also very deeply, deeply worried about, firstly, the possibility of Jonathan, you know, uh, having another term, um, and also uh, almost equally worried about who the, who the successor will be. 
Um, so it's, I, I get the impression that it's almost like a lose-lose scenario, um, you know, with, with these elections ahead. Yeah, that's that's potentially a fair way of putting it. Um, there's another aspect to the elections as well. If Jonathan wins, um, there's there's been a, a, a sort of an unspoken rule in Nigeria. The ruling party, the APC, sorry PDP, um, has has traditionally shared its leadership between the North and the South, uh, the predominantly Muslim North and the predominantly Christian South. And good luck, Jonathan took power. Um, as a result of the death of the previous president, and that sort of threw the order of things out a little bit. So many northerners are kind of annoyed that Jonathan, a southerner, is in place and may, you know, re- retain the presidency. So it, it's not just um, it's not just about the ruling party competing with with the opposition. It's also questions about who uh, or where the centres of power should be in Nigeria. Should they be in the north or should they be in the south? Right. Okay, I see. I see. So, um, I mean, I guess in that case, uh, when are the elections exactly? Do you know? Um, sorry, what the? <laughs> <laughs> no, not a problem. Elections are set for May 2015. Uh, so, so relatively soon. I mean, uh, the point being is, it's, uh, this isn't something that's going to happen later on in the year and become almost a 2016 problem. It's actually it could characterise Nigeria's uh, early, certainly the political landscape. Uh, in the first half of the year. That's quite right. Oh, and I stand corrected, 14th February 2015. Sorry, I have a lot of dates in front of me at the moment. No worries. Okay, so it's even it's even earlier then. Okay, so the 14th of February. Great, because we we're clearly going to have all of our crises early on in the year. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, because obviously going on, I mean, in Nigeria at the moment, we've, you know, almost virtually from New Year's Day, Boko Haram has captured an entire military base. Now, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm guilty of not actually following this too closely, but Conrad, can you just give a bit of uh, background on this? Sure. Um, well, a bit of context. 2014 was the most violent year in the Boko Haram conflict history. Um, and you can generally sort of count that conflict as having started in 2009. Um, things definitely picked up in 2013. Boko Haram seemed to launch a lot more attacks on uh, villages toward the end of the year. And then 2014 just carried on with that trend and it seemed to increase and increase. Uh, not to mention a number of notable uh, fights that Boko Haram won against Nigeria's army. Uh, it overran a couple of bases um, in Borno State. Um, so, so this isn't... Uh, the. The base that you're referring to, I assume, is is the uh, multinational joint task force base in um, uh, Baga village, um, yeah. that which is on uh, on on the oh, it's on the periphery of Lake Chad. Um, that has happened before. Boko Haram oh. has 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 achieved those sorts of victories before, but still, it is a dramatic sort of way of starting off the year um, and and definitely seems to, to suggest things could go even more uh, Boko Haram's way in 2015. And it certainly, it seems like it's, it, because it's so early in the year, it's almost like a, this is what you can expect from us this year. Um, it, it's not, it's, it's going to be a, a, an active year for Boko Haram. It's going to be a, a violent year for Boko Haram. And if you're in the Nigerian military, you 
and happen to have the, the poor misfortune of being one of those poor bastards in the north, you're going to be busy. Um, at least maybe that's the, some of the messages we sent. Well, absolutely. Bear in mind, for, for Boko Haram, 2015 could be the big year, um, precisely because it's an election year. The more pressure yeah. they, they, they put on the government now, leading up to those elections, the, the better for them. Um, so, yes, absolutely, this, this could very well be the start of a series of attacks. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there isn't another wave of bombings, um, either in, in the northeast or uh, as we saw in 2013 and 2014, um, bombings in Abuja. Right, right. Excellent. Okay, I see. And then, um, I suppose in that case, if it's if it's to follow with the elections as well, this 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 could happen as soon as as February, if not this month again. Although that said, you know, even leading into 2015 and in, in late 2014, Boko Haram almost every week was was launching an attack. So uh, I guess I shouldn't paint this almost as if Boko Haram's now flicked a switch somewhere so much as they're just carrying on business as usual and didn't really take a break whereas the rest of us were on holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Um, bear in mind that there are very serious logistical questions to be asked about the, the high tempo of the Boko Haram attacks. Uh, mm. You know, that, that means ammunition, it means fuel, it means it means assuming, food. Yeah. yeah, food, of course. Um, one also has to assume that Boko Haram are taking casualties. Um, it, it seems that the Nigerian military and the Cameroonian military uh, every second week uh, release a report suggesting that they've killed 50 or 100 Boko Haram fighters. Um, I'm always hugely suspicious of these figures, but still, it, it has to be assumed that Boko Haram are taking casualties, and so so they must be getting new recruits. Um so yeah, that, that, that is an aspect to consider as well. Okay, all right, and then I, I think um, moving on for Boko Haram because I think this it's almost a no-brainer to, to, to see that Boko Haram is going to be a significant threat um, in, in Nigeria this year. I think the, uh, the key, as you point out, is, is yeah, I mean, what what to, to what extent, I suppose, and how many and how big and how large, and it sounds like it could be as large as the year. Um, but I mean, moving on to that, looking broader into broader Western and, and, and sort of Maghreb region, looking at Mali, for example, um, what's going on in Mali? And uh, um, do you think, <laughs> what, what do you think the French are thinking, I suppose? But I mean, well, I suppose we can get to the French in a bit. But uh, yeah, give us, uh, give us a brief on that. Well, uh, very quickly, the, the most recent incidents in, in Mali also point to another potentially bad year for that country. Um, there was a recent militant attack on a base uh, at Nampala, uh, which is on the western border with Mauritania, which is quite unusual. Um, the bulk of incidents have been in the north and northeast, uh, not on the western border. Um, now, that, that attack killed several Malian uh, military personnel. At the same time, we have continued attacks on uh, MINUSMA forces, which is the, the multinational force um, Operating in northern in northern Mali, um, the ones that took over from Serval, right? Observal. Uh, well, Observal was the French operation. Minusma is, is the the uh, the follow up to FISMA, which was which was an ECOWAS um, intervention. Okay. And Minusma casualties at the moment sit at I think thirty three dead and about a hundred, little over a hundred injured over the course of that mission. Um, 
2014 saw a number of attacks on MINUSMA personnel, a lot of IEDs, a lot of landmines, um, some indiscriminate rocket and mortar attacks. So they continue to take casualties. And the big question is, well, the participants in that mission are starting to get a little bit tired of those casualties. Um, Chad, in particular, has raised numerous complaints about the fact that Chadian forces seem to be taking... Um, you know, an, an unfair portion of those casualties. Yeah. So, so there are questions to ask about how much longer that mission is going to last. And if it were to end, well, that puts all of the pressure back on uh, the French, of course, and especially right. on the, the Malian army itself. And as, as we know, they aren't in a good place. Um, they, they were effectively destroyed in, in 2012. Morale is, is shot. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's an element of, of pressure there. And, of course, that pressure is heightened because there are still negotiations going on uh, in Algeria between... Or, or Algeria is, is, is sort of acting as a... Uh, overseeing the um, negotiations between the Malian government and yeah. the, the Tuareg separatists, um, who, of course... You know, precipitated the entire conflict, which the Islamists then took over in, in 2012, 2013. So, so there's this element of time and pressure that is is pretty worrying for Mali. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like an incredibly, I mean, like many, I guess, conflicts that are happening at the moment around Africa. There's an incredibly complex uh, scenario with lots of actors having lots of different interests and all of them very, very willing to step out and just go back to the bush with their Kalashnikov or, in, I guess, if you're Chad, go back to Chad uh, with your Kalashnikovs in the back of a truck. Um, uh, I mean, what, what, how, do you, how do you see this playing out? Uh <laughs> Bad, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that, that, would be, that would be the easy prediction. Uh... I, you've put me on the spot, John. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, yeah. I think until some sort of serious negotiated settlement is reached with the the Tuareg militants, there are always going to there's always going to be some element of militancy in north northern um, Mali, and that right. means the military is always going to be under pressure. And you know, e even for a particularly well-equipped, well-trained, high-morale military, um, policing those sorts of borders in that sort of environment is incredibly difficult. Uh, not to mention all of the... Uh, there's a myriad of, of inter-ethnic tensions and, and all sorts of factors like that that also play a role. So, you know, step one for Mali is the successful conclusion of those negotiations taking place in Algeria. And I don't think that that's going to happen this year. Right, right. So, so uh, you know, with without that happening, I think it's just going to be more of the same. Again, with this this clock ticking down in the background of when will Minusma pull out, or potentially when will the French pull out if they decide to, um, yeah. and and what will that mean for for the Malian uh, for the Malian government for President um, Keita. Mm. Well, it'd be very interesting to see what the, I guess, what the French are going to decide to do with their their global strategy against terrorism now, especially after today. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's part of me would think that they would actually stick it out, if not expand on its Operation Barcane now, right? I think they would uh, um, maybe 
continue with that or like you say maybe pull out entirely and sort of draw inward I don't know I mean I don't I, I don't I don't really understand the, the French counterterrorism uh, sort of strategy at all so it'd be certainly quite interesting to see um, and I think um, moving into the broader human security side now um, despite the lack of news around it Ebola is still well present uh, within the West African um, uh, region can you just give us a, a sort of extrapolation that the, the bits and pieces are written about spread of Ebola in Sierra Leone and Liberia appears very bleak indeed like it's actually going to carry on maybe through the rest of the year if not if not get worse yeah quite right the thing about Ebola is traditionally an outbreak of Ebola burns out and what that means is um, those that are infected are either effectively isolated until they are cured or they are effectively isolated until they die um, and in, in smaller outbreaks it, it was the case that you know a, a village would have an outbreak of something like Ebola and the, the disease would burn out effectively when everyone in the village was dead or everyone had, had you know, those who weren't infected had fled. Yeah. Uh, um, the scale of the West African Ebola outbreak means that that sort of burnout process is so, is, is far slower. And, uh, and so, yes, absolutely, it doesn't look like um, Ebola is going anywhere anytime soon. Just to, just to give some quick figures on that, um, the three most heavily hit countries uh, are Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Liberia has 8,000 confirmed cases at the moment, about three and a half fatalities. Uh, Sierra Leone sitting at 10,000 confirmed cases, again, 3,000 fatalities. And Guinea, uh, nearly 3,000 confirmed cases and about 1,800 casualties. Um, Ebola, you know, go going back to the 1976 original strain, um, Ebola has about a 75% mortality rate. The various strains. Right. When when this strain was first identified, it was suggested that it perhaps had a, a, a lower mortality rate, that we were talking something like 50% of those infected would die. Um, it's since, it since, has since you know, appeared that this is in fact just as deadly a, a, a strain of the virus as the others. So if you're sort of suggesting 75% of all cases will die, um, we're still looking at potentially tens of thousands of people that will die in this year as a result. Uh, so, yeah, it, uh, aside from the, the humanitarian tragedy of that, the, the economic consequences, the political consequences of that are, are astounding. Um, yeah. not, not to mention the infrastructural consequences. Um, because of the way Ebola transmits, the people most at risk are the caregivers. And in places like Sierra Leone and Liberia, um, the the staff, the medical staff of those countries are, are already severely depleted. They were depleted by, by war. They were depleted by other outbreaks. Um, so, you know, the, we now have the situation that after Ebola, there simply won't be enough doctors left, doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers, to, to effectively take care of the population. So even after Ebola, something else could come along and cause havoc. Yeah. It was an uh, interesting to think. Uh, I, read, I read an article that I have absolutely no idea if it's qualified. So please take this with a pinch of salt. But it appears like apparently um, the sort of December, January holiday tourism figures for most of Africa, or at least sub Saharan Africa, was actually negatively affected by 
ears of Ebola, despite it being isolated, largely speaking, to, to just three countries, um, you know, which is, a, I suppose, a more, obviously it's a, it's a far more peripheral consequence to what you say. But I think um, going back to, to the, the, the responses in West Africa, do you, do, do you foresee a, a larger contribution by, say, um, the, the, the USA, for example, the, with their, uh, um, their contribution of, of several thousand troops to, to help combat Ebola? Do you, do you see it pretty much staying in status quo until uh, almost like the little village, a larger village, as it were, in the case of Sierra Leone, an entire country, really burns itself out? Well, I think it absolutely is necessary that, that for instance, those U.S. troops who've been uh, who were sent to to help uh, with cordoning off, they they're an absolutely essential and integral part to um, to containment efforts. Uh, the the big fear now is is aside from you know the continued. Um, spread of the disease in the in the cordoned off zones is that the disease will again hop over a border into another um you know a fresh target a, f- a fresh country a, i suppose target is a way of talking about it i've, n- I've noticed there's a lot of of warlike um mm-hmm. phrasing the, the combating of the disease the fighting of the disease yeah. um, and that's that's sort of that kind of containment is actually is is vitally needed yeah okay and then, uh, Conrad, just before we move on, um, any any other things that uh, you you feel are, are particularly uh, important issues for for West Africa for 2015? I think the one final point to make about 2015 for West Africa would be that um, for a number of countries, it it's an election year. Um, aside from Nigeria, Ivory Coast mm-hmm. and Togo also have elections set. Um, mm-hmm. The last time Ivory Coast had elections that ended in a mini civil war and Togo um, has a population that is deeply dissatisfied with its leadership and could very well follow Burkina Faso which of course uh, effectively uh, experienced a, 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 an overthrow it's, depending on how you look at it it was either a social up, uh, a, a spontaneous social uprising or potentially a, a, a kind of Coup d'etat. Popularist, depending on your politics, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and of course, um, at the end of last year, we, we also saw Gambia experience an attempted coup. Um, I'm still waiting to see how that plays out. So, so there's a lot of, of sort of democratic destabilization going on and potential for further destabilization in West Africa. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, all right then. I mean, uh, West Africa sounds like a great place for, for 2015. Um, you know, <laughs> a, a, a great vacation spot. Any, 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 we're going to go to the Niger Delta, sort of windsurfing anytime soon, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, so then, moving from West Africa, um, I'd like. I mean, Conrad, feel free to jump into this as well. Um, Darren, as we're going to talk perhaps a bit about the. The DRC. Now, obviously, we've seen the FDLR deadline for disarmament and demobilization pass um, with maybe a sort of hundred odd FDLR uh, rebels surrendering with even fewer weapons being surrendered at the same time. Now, MONUSCO and the UN and, and the Congolese government are making very, very strong 
uh, rhetoric or rhetorical language now about action and, and doing this and doing that. And even UNESCO forces, well, by extension, FIB or Force Intervention Brigade forces, have already cleared, uh, I say this in inverted commas, an area um, occupied by the FNL, uh, you know, obviously possibly linked to the, the current attacks in Burundi, but in, that's, a, that's a whole other issue. Um, but it appears as if the FIB is ratcheting up for another another engagement. Um, but at the same time, bear in mind, at the end of the march, um, the FIB's mandate ends. Now, it, it'll probably get extended, I guess. But at the same time, if you're a military commander, you can't you can't plan an entire military operation on the assumption that the UN is going to extend your mandate. So, um, Darren, how do you think, at least certainly within the next month or two, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, it definitely won't be a very fast start uh, for any reasons to have above, plus the fact that it takes quite a lot of planning to go out a group like the FDLR. Um, you would kind of think that the planning has been done already, but even so, you know, t- uh, times change, and effectively you couldn't do too much planning until you knew how much the FDLR would demobilize. Um, I saw today that Martin Cobbler has confirmed that MONUSCO will go after the FDLR, Mm. So at least that's you know now on record, but yeah, yeah you know the thing is with, with with the with the, the the mandate expiring in March, even though that that will probably be confirmed, the troops are then due to rotate again uh, in about May June. So your time scale here is really really quite short. Mm. So um, so where does it be forces? Well, at the moment the. You know, obviously, uh, when goes split all around the country, the FIB in particular, I believe uh, Tanzania is up north, uh, sort of in the ADF area. Uh, Malawi is said to be in the east, uh, close to the border to Rwanda. And South Africa is said to be around the Penga area, so just a little bit further west. But one yeah. would think that uh, once operations begin, those forces will be around quite a lot, as they did against M23. Right. Uh, just that people, we need to be careful of expecting the same kind of action against, you know, the FTLR, I saw it's F23. Uh, M23 was you know, very much a conventional type force. They had, uh, you know, regular identifiable positions. So yeah. once they were defeated in battle, you can you know, really point to that and say, well, yeah, we pushed them out of this area. But yeah. FTLR being a, more of a splinter group, Sorry, uh, more of a, of a, of a, of a you know, insurgent group. It's going to be much harder to defeat. Um, on, on attack, they'll most likely melt away, uh, cut off it, it, into much smaller groups, and be a lot harder to defeat. Mm. And uh, I think in that case, um, you, you're talking about really mounting a counterinsurgency campaign. Now that's I don't think in the history of counterinsurgency campaigns has ever been successfully done in the space of two and a half months. Um, I I dare say, even if the mandate is renewed, I I don't see the FIB successfully mounting a a counterinsurgency campaign against 2,000-odd FDLR rebels or insurgents, I guess would be the right language to use, um, in in a year, um, simply because these, like you say, these are not conventional soldiers that you can defeat occupy positions and force a surrender. Um, and I, I think in that case, I I mean, also you mentioned that the FIB forces at the moment are spread all over the Eastern DRC. They're not, they're not centralized in a single place. There's no 
there's no um, mobilization, as it were, towards um, the FDLR-occupied area or region. Um, and in this case, do you do you suspect that perhaps the FIB is looking to maybe rely a little too much on 16 Squadron's two Royfelks to try and maybe, um, I, I mean, I used the term earlier today when we were chatting about this, but to, to maybe slap the wrists of FDLR um, with some some you know, surgical strikes, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, and, and hope that FDLR will then come back to the table? Or, or, or do you think it's something else? No, I definitely think we'll see that up front. Uh, you know, both the UN and the DRC have to give the, the impression, at least, that something's mm. been... Uh, for one, we, um, they can't just let this, this deadline slide. Mm. And... Uh, uh, there's massive pressure, obviously, from neighboring countries, in, in particular Rwanda, to take, to take action. So you know, there are some, I would say, potable areas that could be hit up front to yeah. perhaps destabilize the group, uh, force it underground, force it... Uh, you know, perhaps it's actually advantageous to have it splinter a little bit. And that would be, yeah. yes, I would say there's probably going to be a huge amount of reliance on the two... MI-24s from the Ukraine and the three warfocks from South Africa uh, to try and right. at, at least achieve some sort of uh, mobility and uh, uh, well, freedom of action. Mm. But as a long-term issue, uh, this is not a group that's going to be defeated, as you said, in two and a half months. Mm. Uh, at best, they can be removed from, or I say removed, they can be dispersed from some of the areas in which they are, they are currently quite strong. Yeah. And really, it, it, this will just be the opening act in a, a kind of battle that's going to take many, many months, possibly even years. And for that, arguably, the FIB isn't the correct uh, mechanism. This is more of a policing action. It's more of a you know, traditional counterinsurgency role. And it requires yeah. a, a huge amount of effort to extend the, the power of the government into those areas. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, that, that certainly makes sense. And uh, given the size of the FDLR, and not to mention that the fact that at the same time, further, because this is in the South, South Kivu, if I remember correctly, um, up in the north, you, you have ADF Nalu allegedly, um, you know, mounting all manner of, of, of atrocities and attacks and raids against villages there, um, further compounding the problem, not to mention APCLS, which had, had FIB attacks earlier against it last year. Um, but you know that, and the, the countless my my militia that you know whose, whose allegiances are um, questionable at best. Um, it, it really makes for quite a quite a difficult scenario, and a, definitely a departure, as you say, from from the the heydays of M twenty three. And I think, yeah, I think it's. I, I don't. I mean, I, I I do know. I wouldn't want to be the FIB force commander. I wouldn't want to be Martin Cobbler, and I wouldn't want to be uh, General Dos Santos Cruz. And uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade places with them for all the all the money in the world. No, indeed, not me either. I mean, for example, one of the reasons the South African forces are still in around Pinga is to patrol the area where uh, the Mamai Shaka forces were, were were pushed out from. And part of the reason why the FIB remains quite static was to try and free up the DRC army to go off and, and, and go after the ADF. So to try and open up a massive second front now, or if I say second front, it's practically 100-foot front in that area, is, is really going to stretch not only the UN, but uh, also the, the, you know, the, the, the DRC army. And uh, what, what, you know, however powerful the FIB might, might appear on paper, 
the truth is that uh, the, the, the DRC army must take uh, the lead, and the UN can't afford to have um, you know, many, many uh, deaths or, or, or injuries. Yeah. And I certainly think um, the South African side as well. Uh, I mean, if, if any, most South Africans don't even realize, I suspect that we even have soldiers there. But certainly when body bags start coming back, uh, you can be sure the, the, the willingness to be involved in this would, would decrease. And I think also a big question mark as well is the Congolese government who, um, as in any of these things, and I, I mentioned it today when I was uh, on, on, on ENCA talking about the, the same stuff today, was it was about how... This is only a tactical solution. At the end of the day, you still need a political resolution to all of these things. And the Congolese government hasn't even been able to fulfill its promises of DDR um, mechanisms with M23. I mean, I've, I've heard from sources in Goma that there has been virtually, if none, uh, if any at all, rather, um, DDR or post-conflict uh, reintegration mechanisms for M23. Now that makes me wonder. Well, if they can't even do it for M23, because perhaps they perhaps they thought they beat them so resoundingly they don't need to, um, you know, sort of treat the the soldiers as if they're going to go back into the bush. Um, what then of FDLR, assuming there's even a successful campaign, and what then of ADF, who would could potentially be another uh, target, and what then of, you know, other you know rebel group X and rebel group Y, and it's just it's it, it's it's a deeply worrying sign that even if all the military pieces come together um, the political puzzle is is far from complete um, exactly. I think that's like, very good I, I mean if you look back at the last uh, it's more, the last decade of war in that area one of the recurring themes is a lack of proper EDR I mean M23's mm-hmm. leadership uh, were originally reintegrated into the army and that, and that fell completely part of yeah. it is political part of it is, is just simply a lack of capacity you know, half the reason there are so many groups there because the DRC government effectively does not govern in that part of the country. So yes, yeah. so it's going to be quite a, you know, uh, I think, a long slog, and it's going to require a lot more effort, I think, from the surrounding countries. We need to stop having this idea of uh, um, force being able to solve the problem. The FIB was a wonderful idea uh, when it came to M23 because the only way to achieve any kind of forward, uh, progress there was to first defeat them militarily to create the space to then uh, have uh, you know, uh, various other, other types of solutions. Right. Uh, there is still some scope for that with FDLR and ADF, obviously, because uh, they, they do have to be uh, and at least that the strongest yeah. military wings must be defeated. Yeah. And they, they were originally part of a political party. I mean, they're, they're, they're not completely, uh, they're, they're not bandits. You know, there, there is a political agenda um, at foot there. So I think, um, um, thank you, Darren. I think moving from there, let's let's move on to South Africa. Um, and now South Africa and the SNDF have got a busy year ahead of themselves. And I, I wrote an article on this on Monday, just very briefly, very, very briefly, I cannot emphasize enough, outlining um, the, the, the hard choices that are that are coming up for the SNDF. Um, now, key amongst that, obviously, is the, the South African Defense Review which, uh, as I understand, is still sitting in Parliament. Now, um, I'm, I'm honestly starting to, to, at least this is my, my, my opinion, rather, is I'm, I'm starting to wonder if this thing's ever actually going to come through, and if so, whether or not budget will be forthcoming thereafter. Um, and if not, um, what 
worries me most, I think, is that the planners and the even the drafters of this this uh, South African Defence Review um, themselves say there is no Plan B. This is what must happen, or we're going to slip into obsolescence. Um, and that's unfortunately that's not a very helpful um, sort of contingency scenario. Um, and I, I think that's very worrying, at least from my side. I mean, uh, Darren, I don't know if you if you're more optimistic about this than me, but I have to admit I'm not. You know, the, the delay in Parliament is it just simply cannot be explained. Uh, there have been so many opportunities to discuss it, to to pass it, to to review it. You know. Um, hasn't been done. The, there, there's a complete sense that there's no urgency whatsoever from the government side. In terms of the low plan B, uh, the defence review from the start was drafted according to a government instruction, effectively, that the money would cut. So, yeah. were effectively, the, the mandate was to have no plan B. And yeah. that, uh, what, I've, what I've heard on the side uh, from various people involved is that... Um, uh, well, you, uh, to, to get some background, the defence review has various milestones, and these mm-hmm. milestones are effectively goals. So, you know, it's, if you want this level of capability, you fund up to this point. If you want um, a little yeah. bit more, you fund up to the, to the, to the yeah. point Y. Um, and there are five milestones. Initially, the planners were going to recommend milestone three as the most affordable <laughs> and best option, but the the president himself, uh, when the defence review was was sent back sent them back with instruction that they must plan for milestone four, which is far more expensive and, you know, requires a far higher level spending. Well, be more funding as well. Exactly. And, I mean, we're talking about, you know, level of, let's say, around 88 billion around a year. And mm. there's just simply no space whatsoever in our, in our budget for that. So mm. I, I don't know where the money will come from. I, I don't know how uh, there could be any sort of concept right now that there is space for this or that it will happen. Mm. And uh, I'm very pessimistic. At the same time, uh, there's been no let-up in the commitments that are being uh, you know, asked of the SANDF. Uh, for example, the, the president's assigned the SANDF to the, the African, or the, the ACRC, um, which costs another, you know, what, four billion rand? Yeah. And uh, again, you know, there's just uh, no additional funding forthcoming. Yeah, the pledge resembles something like the FIB plus a few extra bits and pieces as well, um, yes. which is it's patently unrealistic in the current you know financing levels. Well, that's, for sure. that's, that's a problem. I mean, it isn't just the FIB in terms of South Africa's prospection; it's the FIB entirely. Yeah. So South Africa would have to provide the forces, you know, one and a half thousand troops plus, uh, you know, a number of Gripens, a number of Warfox. Effectively, if if the ACRC were called on to be operational. So mm. it would have to withdraw from the DRC. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think with, with that as well, we're going to see, I mean, there'll be quite a few interesting things happening in January now with, uh, you know, the IGLR, the, the Great Lakes Region uh, group, discussing what's to be done about FDLR. Um, and at the same time, uh, late in January, the African Union will actually be sitting to provide an update on the opera- operationalization process of, of, of ACIRC or ACRC, ILC. Um, and I think it almost seems as, as if both are happening irrespective of the, the, the real world finance or financial considerations for the SNDA. Um, yes. And I feel like the bastards in uniform are now left with the with the check, you know, at the end of the meal, you know, and it's it just it's you know one one wonders how does it 
you know, how does it all resolve? And I guess in that sense, we'll, I guess we'll see in March when, when the, the South African budget is announced um, and we'll actually get to, to, to see whether or not um, the government is actually seriously going to apportion a, a realistic amount for, for the Defence Department or if it's going to be more of the same. And I know in last year's budget there was a, an allocation for a, a relatively significant increase, I think almost in, t- in anticipation of the Defence Review. Um, I, I forget the amount, but it was, it was certainly a blip on the, the financial statements, to, to you know, noticeable, at least to me. Um, yeah. and I, I just wonder if that's not going to be revised or completely just disregarded uh, going forward. Um, well, you know, the, 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 the midterm budget was quite disappointing in that regard. Mm. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, basically at this point, Treasury's view is that until the defense review is passed, uh, the budget will remain the same. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I, um, this money for, for no good reason. There has to be a policy framework behind it. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and then, so, um, so, yeah, oh yeah, carry on. No, I just wanted to say, so, you know, um, I think in all respects, as you wrote, this is going to be quite a, a, an important year for the SNDF. Uh, either we'll see you know, a really positive move in additional funding and at least a better framework around what they do, or we'll start to see the first signs of real collapse. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, as a, uh, I guess we only have to wait two months to see uh, what what happens with that, um, which will be. Yeah. I mean, we we just have to keep closely a close eye on that. Um, I think that said, uh, assuming no no defence reviews passed, um, do you foresee any major uh, procurement projects um, um, coming to fruition this year? Um, you know, perhaps I, I know Saucepan was uh, the maritime patrol craft were. Um, was a hot topic last year. Um, do, do you think we'll finally see that, that coming to the fore? Or yes. any other? Yeah, quite possibly. Saucepan's been split into two projects now to try and, I think, help with the procurement. Uh, it's projects METSI and KIPI. KIPI is for uh, light aircraft to replace the, the Casa 212s and uh, the old Dakotas. And yeah. METSI is, is to acquire you know, a, 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 a maritime patrol aircraft. Mm. Whether it happens this year, I, I can't say for sure. I think the most likely project to happen this year is Biro to acquire new, uh, new well, offshore and, and inshore patrol ships. But yeah. I really doubt any of them will come through if the defence review isn't passed. Um, mm. In fact, I know that there currently are plans within the, the SAF force at least uh, that if the current funding does not improve within the next, I'd say, probably three or four years, uh, there are plans to retire entire types. I mean, that includes the Roy Falk, uh, possibly also the Griffins as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, those are probably the most expensive. And, I mean, even though they, they certainly draw headlines, least utilized aircraft in the, in the SA Air Force, um, and thus would be probably the first ones to go. Yes. Well, actually, I think the, the Roy Falk would probably be first to go because of the small numbers. Yeah. True. True. And then, but I mean, that's a the Griffin could theoretically be replaced with the Hawk, given the, the Hawk's capability to act as both a trainer and attack aircraft should the need arise. It just obviously then means we lose, you know, advanced fighter or interdictor capability. Uh, I think that would probably be quite disastrous uh, in terms of the fact that the Hawk has no radar and it's still quite a very basic aircraft. But that's probably going to be the subject of, I think, of, of a future podcast. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah rest assured, we, uh, we'll certainly be you know covering that as as we go along. And then, and then in terms of uh, uh, satellites, Darren, what can you tell us? What's happening in space for South Africa? <laughs> so the story goes, and this is quite convincing at least, is that uh, well, Russia has launched a synthetic aperture radar spy satellite uh, for South Africa, or at least on our behalf, for defense intelligence. Um, to go back a bit, this, 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 this radar type is called the Condor. So you have two types. You have the Condor, which is for the, the you know, government of Russia, and you have the Condor-E, which is for export. Because it was developed, and they realized that the only way to really fund the development was to sell these to outside parties. Now, as a satellite, the Condor-E actually isn't, very, isn't, isn't that bad. Um, it's got a, a, a five to, to, to ten-year lifespan, which is about average for these satellites. It has a you know, very, very, very powerful um, synthetic aperture radar sensor uh, with you know, quite a large dish sitting up there in space. And um, you know, in terms of the cost, uh, $1.5 billion rand, it really is not a bad price for capability of this type. Um, you know, it, it does have its uses. For example, it's kind of, it's kind of satellite that allows you to do uh, well, to detect uh, ships, to detect vehicles on, on land, to detect uh, changes in buildings. In fact, uh, the real value of a static aperture radar satellite, over and, you know, as opposed to your typical um, satellite with, with, with a camera. Yeah. So this isn't it's affected by by uh, you know day, night, by weather, or anything. So um, the images can be achieved uh, uh, regardless of, of, of any condition. Yeah, which means that you're able to do what's what's known as a change change analysis. So run over the same spot you know, every few months, or that's actually a few every few days um, over a few months, yeah. and you can use specialized software to uh, detect which type of vessel they are, where, where they're moving to, what bonds are being created, where um, yeah. uh, tanks and whatnot are being moved to. So there is value to it. I think uh, we need to avoid the impression that this is a complete waste of money. Right. That being said, uh, for a force like the SANDF, at the point it is now where it has far more pressing needs for uh, you know, motor patrol aircraft, for regular surveillance aircraft, for transport aircraft, this is not capability on which it makes any sense to, to be spending money at the moment. Uh, it's it's kind of like you know, you're know you buying a, a fancy V12 engine and you, you actually haven't worn the wheels to go to the car. Mm. Uh, no, so this thing, for example, will give us the ability to, let's say, identify ships at sea, but uh, which aircraft will we send out to go and, and you know, get a closer look? Uh, in my view, this is, you know, the only benefit of this kind of, of this satellite, of, of, of having your own as opposed to renting time on uh, the very, very higher res civilian ones, is that mm. you, you can guarantee your time of, of, of imaging. So, you know, let's say if you use like civilian service like Terrasar, um, yeah. you have to wait in line for the next time they have a gap for you to, to image your area because a satellite has only a very limited amount of onboard storage. Uh, so with, with, with our own satellites, Africa couldn't carry, say, on the very next part of this area, I want an image, and they guarantee that. But that's not worth 1.4 billion rand every five years. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the thing. In my view, it's, it's quite a new capability. Uh, in, in absolute terms, it's, it's not a bad price to pay the kind of satellite. But it's complete insanity for the Africa to have it, if this is indeed true. 
And it shows, in my mind, that uh, defense intelligence has far too much influence over the entire SANDF and, and the budget. Yeah. And I suppose in that, in that sense, we'll, we'll uh, I guess, see in the, the ensuing months whether or not this, this uh, the launch in December, at least, was in fact for us or for, for South Africa or if it was for another country. And then it certainly sounds like uh, all, all indications are, all indicators are pointing towards a, a synthetic aperture satellite for, for South Africa, which is, yes. yeah. Nice to have, but certainly not the first thing we need uh, on the on the shopping list for the SNDF. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know, especially with, with with the work that the CSR is doing with with you know, pub companies to work on on cheaper ways of getting the same kind of imagery. Mm. And there really is nothing, no no sort of uh, current threat that we're facing that would require this sort of capability right now. Mm. But yeah. I think we'll see. Um, hopefully, we'll get more info. Um, I must credit David Murray of the DA. He has uh, done quite a good job of bringing it out. Yeah. And um, I just hope it isn't one of those situations where we actually um, never, ever find out. Yeah. Yeah, so it's listed as a, you know, a national key point or something. <laughs> national <laughs> point or something like that. The first uh, one that, 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 that keeps moving. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, um, with that, I think we're going to tie up uh, the, uh, this podcast. We've already gone uh, almost, almost close to an hour here. Um, if you've, uh, you've listened this far, well done. Um, consider yourself informed on what's happening in Africa, um, conflict and security-wise. Um, you've been listening to myself, John Stupart, the editor of African Defense Review, and our, our senior staff here, Darren Olafia and Conway Waddington. Um, if you like what we do, please subscribe to us on Twitter at African Defense, or better yet, just check out our website, africandefense.net. Um, this is African Defense Review. Have a good day.